Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. In today's episode, I'm speaking to GP partner Dr. Tommy Perkins and specialist medical accountant Andy Powell from Medics Money, which was set up by Tommy and fellow GP Dr. Ed Cantello to help doctors make better decisions about money. In this conversation, I'm talking to Tommy and Andy about GP partnerships and why partnership is still a good option despite some of the doom and gloom people may have heard. We talk about how partnerships are changing with more non-GPs taking on the role, what to consider if you're thinking about becoming a partner, take a quick detour into pensions with some useful advice for all GPs, and also discuss challenges around premises. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. So I'm really pleased to be joined now by Dr. Tommy Perkins and Andy Powell from Medics Money. Tommy is a GP partner who set up Medics Money with fellow GP, Dr. Ed Cantello. Before Ed decided to become a doctor, he actually worked as an accountant. Tommy and Ed have been on the podcast before, so if you want to find out more about how and why they set up Medics Money, do have a look for that previous episode, which was back in May last year. Today, Tommy is joined by another of his colleagues, Andy Powell, who's a specialist medical accountant and has spent many years working with GP practices, supporting them with their accounts and their finances. Tommy and Andy are here today to talk about GP partnerships generally and also how to make partnerships more sustainable in what is a very challenging financial environment. Thank you so much both for coming on the podcast. No problem. Thanks for having us back. Thanks very much, Emma. So, Tommy, part of the reason we're here today is that Medics Money runs a new to partnership training course to help GPs and other clinicians who become partners to understand the ins and outs of what it means to be a partner and in particular, the financial aspects. We're always hearing no one wants to be a partner at the minute, but you've had a lot of interest in your course, haven't you? How many people have you been training? We have had tons of interest in our course. So we've now trained over 400 partners on our partnership course. And it's not just GP partners. We've got practice manager partners. We've got advanced nurse practitioner partners, physio, pharmacist, a paramedic practitioner partner. Yeah, we have been surprised by the level of interest. We're on our sixth cohort. The next cohort, the sixth one, starts on Wednesday, the 27th of September. But the first cohort was in October 21. And we thought, "Mm, we might get 10 or 15 people and we got 40. And it's kind of escalated from there. And I think the reason why we started the course and why it's popular is we get lots of clinical training, you know, how to be do medicine as a GP, which is good, because that's a a large part of the job. But if you're going to become a partner, you are going to be running a small or medium sized business. And The GP practice is a business and the business is helping people and hopefully making them better, which is, I still think, the best business in the world. But we don't get hardly any or no training in the business aspect as we go through our GP training. So when I became a partner, I felt like I was on cheat mode, basically, because I had access to all the experts like Andy and Ed at Medics Money. And so instead of joining the partnership and not knowing anything about the business side of things, I kind of hit the ground running relatively speaking, obviously. Uh, And we just wanted to kind of recreate the experience that I had of having teaching from the best experts in the business like Andy and Ed for as many people as possible. So yeah, we've got over 400 now and um, the next cohort in September is already filling up fast. You're a partner and you obviously wanted to become a partner. You think it's a good job to have and all these people do. Why are people still choosing to become partners and why did you decide to become a partner? Yeah. So I think, as you said, there is a lot of negativity around partnerships at the moment. And some of that is justified for sure. But, you know, the right partnership can still be a really rewarding career, a really supportive career working with the same people day in and day out for many, many years, hopefully. 
GP as a career is so diverse. There's so many options for everyone. And I kind of tried out all the options and ended up being a partner. So I started off as a salary GP and I loved the clinical side of that. But I saw lots of things that I thought could be done better on the business side, but I was completely powerless to do it because I was a, a salary GP and they weren't overly kind of receptive to new ideas. Then I became a locum and that was amazing. Like visiting different surgeries just struck me how different surgeries are in the way that they run things, which is surprising considering we're all in the same industry, the same business, which is helping people, making them better. Uh, And I got some amazing ideas of good practice there when I was locuming and kind of jotted them down in the back of my mind. Then I became a, a, a specialist interest in dermatology and did some skin cancer surgery. And that's really enjoyable. That kind of all led me to being a partner, really. And I chose to be a partner because I think it's a great opportunity to improve things. And as I said, helping people and making them better. But it also needs to be profitable because if the partnership is not profitable, it will shut uh, and those patients will lose their doctors, which is a disaster. Uh, I also enjoy continuity. So I get to see the same patients and families through years of diseases and things. And I enjoy that. I can cycle to my partnership, which might sound trivial, but for the next 30 years, if I can cycle there, that's really good for my mental well-being. I love it. It just sort of clears my head at the end of a busy day. That's why I ended up being a partner. I've been a partner five years now, so I'm well past the honeymoon stage, but I still love it. Being a partner is a big leap for someone who's probably not taken on this role before. Andy, as an accountant, what sort of advice do you give people who are weighing up whether or not to join a particular practice? You know, What sort of things should GPs be looking at when they're thinking about becoming a partner? So when, I, when I'm always talking to new partners, I always sort of talk about the finances because obviously I'm a finance expert, so I concentrate on that. But it's only part of the jigsaw of, of joining a practice. Partners have to look at everything and just make sure it's the right type of environment for them to work in. At the moment, we've sort of got, you know, the finance is a crucial part. If you don't have a sustainable business, then actually you're not going to get paid as a partner. So that's really important. But some partners are are very financially driven, so they might go for a very financially focused practice. Other partners may be focused very much on the clinical side. They may be less financially focused. So you've got to just weigh all those things up. In terms of specific advice, I would always advise people to take professional advice when joining a partnership. You need to understand this is a business and there are risks that go with a business, albeit all those risks can be mitigated. And it actually, as a business, General practice is quite low risk, really, compared with most commercial businesses. But you need to understand what you're getting into. You need to understand the finances. You need to understand the property. You just need to understand the dynamics of the practice. So talking to specialist accountants is always a good idea. I might be biased, um, but actually they've got a great depth of knowledge and they can give you some very good benchmarking compared with other practices. But talk to the practice manager within the, the practice itself. Brilliant source of knowledge. They will understand the practice and clearly they want you to join, but really sit down with them and understand the practice and talk to sort of local GPs in the area who will be able to give you feedback on that practice. So a wide range of people that they should talk to. I'd also be wary and going back to your last comment, you know, there's so much stuff out there on social media. It's not the best form of uh, advice, really. General practice is really good. Generally, uh, it is struggling in some areas. In some areas of the country, it really is struggling. But in other areas, it's not. In other areas, the finances are okay. The workload's okay. It's tough, but most professional jobs are. Just be wary about a lot of the negativity around at the moment, I think, because that can put people off when actually it shouldn't be. You must see it from the other side as well. You must have clients and people you've worked with who really struggled to recruit partners. 
Is that still a common issue now? Or has that, you know, the new to partnership program, which was encouraging people to take on partnerships. So do you think that's actually helped solving some of the issues around recruiting partners? There is a problem at the moment. I don't think the political situation helps at the moment. Either the current government or proposed Labour government really are not giving out the right signals at the moment towards general practice. And I think that is causing problems. But there are people still looking for partnerships. And certainly when you come on, uh, and, and you know, I've, I've dealt with people on this course and actually on other courses that are uh, people have run, and actually it is a real positive bunch of people that want to be partners. Um, it may be smaller in terms of numbers than it was 10, 15 years ago, but I think that's just the reality of general practice these days. But there are still people looking. It is tough, though, in some areas, you know, um, and, and it's surprising sometimes that actually – I've got some really good or active, some really, really strong financial practices, and yet they seem to struggle. And partly it may be location. Partly it's some of the parts of the country, um, some of those coastal areas, which are really difficult to recruit into at the moment. And I'm not sure whatever you do, they're going to get over that problem at the moment. So they may need to be looked at differently. And then we've got a lot of non-GP partners who are interested. So, I mean, that's a really important growing area. So I think the whole dynamics of partnership is changing, but there are still people out there looking for it. Tommy, you were saying that people who've come on your course, they're all from all sorts of different backgrounds now. So I was wondering, what do you think some of the benefits are potentially for practices? I think that it makes perfect sense if you actually think about it, what you want your role as a partner. So partly it's for me as a clinician, the clinical role, but a large part of it is in the management of the business role. Who's to say really that a GP is better than a practice manager or a paramedic practitioner in managing that business. And I think, you know, you are going to see many, many more of non-GP partners. I am in favor of it in general. I know that some people are not, but some of the arguments against it are pretty weak because these paramedics, uh, practitioners and etc., they're a vital cog of how the practice runs now. So it makes perfect sense to at least have them in a management role. Andy, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because this is maybe something that people get quite scared about with partnerships, I think, you know, taking on a partnership, the kind of financial potential risks that are associated with it. What's the difference between being a partner or taking on a partnership in a, in a practice that owns its own building as opposed to one that doesn't? And are there any benefits or pros and cons of each? So I think property is a really interesting issue at the moment. Ownership's been really good for general practice, and it's usually a very sound investment to make because essentially, you you know, if you've got a buy-to-let flat or something, you've got a tenant who might come and go from, from time to time. You may have problems with your tenants, et cetera. But actually in a GP scenario, effectively your tenant is the government and the government pay you a, a rent in perpetuity, um, as long as that surgery is going to carry on existing. So actually, from an investment viewpoint, it's a very sound investment, which is why actually we've got a quite active private investor market out there who want to buy into GP practices or take take over the premises side of things uh, at the moment, because they can see the long-term benefit of doing that. The short-term problem we've got at the moment in the GP area is unfortunately with interest rates being so high, um, compared with uh, where they have been recently, the actual costs of financing loans is is a lot higher. Actually, obtaining loans is fine. The major banks are still happy to lend to GPs, and they will lend 100% of the money. So you don't actually have to find a deposit like you would do with a, a residential property. It's just making sure the numbers work and making sure the valuation works and, and the rent you're getting in 
for your share of the ownership is at least covering, well, very much covering the interest side of the, the repayments, but hopefully some of the capital. But over time, it grows. So there's a short-term problem with interest rates being so high is that the rent side hasn't gone up as much recently as perhaps the interest rates have. That will resettle itself soon, I'd imagine. The other issue at the moment is perhaps valuations are quite high. Some of these buildings are, are big and therefore the numbers can become quite scary. But again, fundamentally, if the rent coming in is matching the, the outgoings, it's a good long-term investment. Leasing sounds simple. So if you move into a practice which has lease premises, that sounds straightforward because you don't have to worry about getting funding. You can just sort of, you know, turn up, carry on. But actually, that doesn't mean you haven't got any risk. In fact, you've got quite a big risk. And the biggest commercial risk a GP practice has is probably to do with premises leases. You have to bear in mind when joining a practice like that, you have to you know, you, you talk about what advice people need. Well, they should certainly get the lease reviewed and understand what's in the lease uh, by a lawyer or, you know, maybe someone like the BMA can help with their members of the BMA. Those types of organisations can help because lease premises come with a lease and there tends to be quite a long lease. They're, you know, 15, 20 year leases with commercial terms, with commercial landlords who will not be your nice friendly NHS type of landlord. And so you've got to understand what the risk is if, you know, um, whilst you'll get your rent reimbursed, you know, what other risks there are in terms of service charges, what risks there are in terms of when the lease comes to an end, in terms of renewing it, do you have a problem then? What kind of issues there may relate to around things like last man standing clauses. So there's pros and cons at the moment. It's not easy, but actually, again, getting the right advice and just understanding things is really important because actually GPP ownership tends to be very good long-term. Most GPs, uh, you know, it's a good long-term investment for them. It's not going to grow, you know, a huge amounts, but it will grow steadily over time. Leases, less of an issue about instant finance, but more in terms of longer-term commercial risk to consider. So we're going to come on in a minute just to talk about um, sort of some of the challenges that, that partnerships are facing. But I just wanted to know, before we move on from this, is um, you know what's the key bit of advice? So say someone has has found a partnership, they've become a partner. What's the key bit of advice you'd give to someone who's just starting out as a as a partner once they've got into their surgery? So I think the number one for me, it might not surprise you, you got to get some business training. You know, you are a clinician, but also now a partner, a business owner. Uh, you haven't probably had any training at all. And you're in the business of helping people and making people better. I still think that's the best business in the world. But if you have got no business experience, you are going to really, really struggle. So you've got to get some business training. And there's so many options out there now for funding it. So you may still be eligible for the funding under the new partnership agreement, although that's now finished. So just have a look at your eligibility there. There is monies within the PCN leadership and management payment, which is how people pay for our course. So there is ways to fund this training, but get some training. Number two would be engage with your peers in a community. When you become a partner, it can be feel like you're swimming against the tide and everyone else is locoming or building a side hustle and you're becoming a partner thinking, what, is it just me? It's not just you. So get into a community of other people in your situation. The way that we do this at Medics Money is with our online community and it's completely private to the course and there's over 400 partners in there, just all working together, asking questions of each other. How do you do this? How do, how do you structure your triage? What does your duty list look like? You know, how do you uh, claim your rent reimbursements, et cetera? So try to network with people in your similar situation. Third tip would be, when you join, just sit back 
and watch for a bit. Okay. So you're the new, you're the new kid on the block. You know, you're, you're not going to know everything. No one does. So just sit back and watch and, and, and just pick one part of the business and see, you know, how does the practice manager work? What does the practice manager do? Okay. Now I understand that a bit better. Let's have a look at what the nurses do. What, you know, what, how do they work? And then using that, you might be able to build some strengths and weaknesses. So that's my fourth tip, which is to do a SWOT analysis. So strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Google it. It's useful. Uh, do a SWOT of your business. And we do this as a partnership so that everyone gets to contribute. And then pick one project from this SWOT analysis and just work on one project at a time. And Andy's probably chuckling here because he knows how chaotic I am when I'm working on multiple projects. But I've been a partner now five years and I've probably done five major projects in that time. So one a year, which feels painstakingly slow, but that is how it is, you know, big projects, you know, improving the workflow of our letters so that we don't have 30 letters each day. I get between three and five, you know, online booking, online consultations, moving towards total triage. These are big, big projects. You're not going to crack them in a month or two. It's going to take a long time. So yeah, get some training, link up with peers in a similar situation as you Sit down and watch for a little bit, but not too long when you join. And then pick one project and try and work on that. One of the things that will worry people, I guess, about becoming a partner, but I mean, as you both sort of said, this is a, a big long-term career and there's lots of advantages over the long term. But at the minute, this is a really difficult time you know, for businesses and GP practices are not excluded from that. So we all know everyone's kind of dealing with rising inflation, what sort of things are we seeing that practices are having to do and how is it actually affecting the way partnerships are having to work? Every business at the moment has got different issues facing it and general practice is no different. Um, the inflation side is a problem in general practice because the costs are going up and actually the resource that's going in on the income side is, is a problem. Some of the things you can do should be done in the good times as well. It, nothing's actually fundamentally changed. It's just when things get tougher people start to notice them a lot more uh, and some of the basic fundamentals you've got to do is firstly maximize your income it sounds simple but you know making sure on things like your quaff that your prevalence is is high it's not just about achieving the points it's getting that prevalence up to actually in increase the the funding you get claiming for all those items of service things and just checking you've been paid with the change to to icbs you know, the whole pay, not the whole payment side, but a lot of personnel have changed at the ICB side. So some of the payments are, are getting lost in the system at the moment. So having, worst thing is to do the work and not get paid for it. So it's really important you're, you're on top of that. When it comes to non-AHS work, making sure you're billing it properly at appropriate rates. But fundamentally, which is what general practice is not very good at doing, it's really good at chasing income. Um, so whenever NHS England or come out with something, it's, you know, often GP practices go for it. You've got to go back to fundamentals of business. Do not take on work that's not profitable. Um, you should not be doing it. Otherwise, you are funding something that you're funding the NHS effectively. So every new service that comes out, everything the ICBs may start doing in the next few years, you've got to assess what income it's going to bring in what it's going to cost you, and what other benefits it may bring. It may bring fantastic benefits to your patients, but no way should you be funding that. Costs generally are kept under control quite well by GP practices. The, the risk, though, when things get tough is let's start slashing costs. And you've got to be very careful with that because particularly around staff, the majority of GP costs tend to be around staffing costs, and good staff need to be rewarded. 
If you don't reward them, they will move elsewhere. You've got lots of demand coming from PCNs, coming from other parts of the health service, coming from outside the health service at the moment. And therefore, you've got to keep people happy. And it's always more expensive to recruit than to actually retain. Actually, understanding some of the basics around tax are quite important at the moment. Um, so bear in mind with, with costs, or costs come with tax relief. So actually, if somebody's costing you £100 more, you're going to get tax relief on that. So it's going to reduce that net cost to you. It's also actually going to reduce your pension costs as well. So actually roughly, you know, and if you're sadly a, a GP with still student loan, it reduces your student loan repayments as well a bit. You know, for every £100 you, you spend, actually it's only going to probably cost you something about £40, maybe less in your pocket. So while some of the headline costs, particularly around staff, may look really bad, take account of tax relief that, that goes with it. And probably the last thing as well is just don't forget about those ancillary benefits that, that exist with being the NHS. And uh, probably one of the fundamental ones is the NHS pension. The NHS pension is a really valuable part of, firstly, what you get paid, but also what you can offer staff as well. I'm an accountant. I'm outside the NHS. I can't join the NHS pension scheme, but I would have done if I could have done. I'm sure you would have done as well, Emma. But <laughs> would, you know, yes. people in the NHS forget how good it is, and it's it's a really good pension scheme despite all the changes. It may not be as good as it was ten years ago, but it's it's still very good. That's quite a big selling point when you compare that with you know perhaps your your receptionist who's looking to go you know work for Aldi or any of the other supermarkets. Actually, the NHS pension side is is a really important part of the package. It's a long-term thing and people don't necessarily see long-term because they've got to address things today. But but don't forget about things like that. While we're talking about pensions, there's been loads of issues with NHS pensions over the last few years. And, and I'm pretty sure, Tommy, we spoke about pensions when you were last on the podcast as well. <laughs> One of the big things was about annual allowances and all of that. And that's kind of been resolved. Have, have the measures that the Treasury's put in place, have they sorted out all these problems, do you think? No, it's not been resolved totally. Um, I was quite surprised what happened in the budget in 2023. Um, In my viewpoint, they should have abolished the annual allowance and kept the lifetime allowance if they were going to keep one of the two, but they did it the opposite way around. It has removed the problem for a lot of GPs, which is good. You know, so it's actually going to take the majority of people out of the the problem of handling annual allowance um, side of things. But actually, there still will be some that get caught. I'm more concerned actually about the stuff that's outside general practice. So perhaps those GPs that are doing lots of out of hours and uh, other parts of the the NHS system, which relies on GPs working for it, they tended to earn more because they were working longer hours, um, and they're still going to be affected. So it's not you know there is still a group of GPs out there that still have to have their pension side looked at, but it is a lot lot better than it was. It's just it's just a shame they couldn't have sorted the problem out once and for all and not had to worry about it. One of the other big problems that that GPs seem to face in particular is problems around pension statements and getting up-to-date information. I mean, that has been a nightmare and that seems to have been ongoing for several years now. What advice would you generally give to people about their pension and making sure they're on top of what's going on with their pension? The problems, particularly in England with PCSE, have been documented on, on so many different things may not feel it if you're one of these people that are struggling to get their pension record updated, but that has improved. But there's still a lot of people with gaps in their pension record. 
it's really important at the moment because we're about to go into a whole period where stuff's going to come out about the McLeod pension rectification resolution that people can try and get their pension records up to date. So the first thing to do is just to actually see if you can access a total reward statement from the uh, the pensions agency and try and get that. If you can't, that will say point you to the fact there's a problem. There are ways now of checking within the PCSC system if they've got missing returns and it's trying to plug the difference or, or those those missing records. It tends to be a problem with GPs. Well, locums have always been a problem. Um, I think the locum side of things is still not brilliant and there, there are gaps in locum records, but it also tends to be a problem where GPs have done had outside posts with, say, a CCG or um, an out-of-hours provider. Out-of-hours providers, to be fair, were quite good, may have done appraisals, uh, and their pension record was dealt with slightly differently. And it's that part that tends to fall down within the PCSE system. That may not, to be fair, in terms of PCSE, be their fault because actually they're reliant on information that goes into their system. If it's If it's not good quality, then it's not really their fault. They can't process it at the other end. But yeah, GPs at the moment, I think, just have to persevere, really, and just try and make sure your record's up to date. You know, once you do get it up to date, it tends to be easier to keep things up to date. Right. So that's the thing. It's basically try and get it up to date. It's worth putting in the effort now because then it's just going to save you a load of aggro in the future. It is, yeah. Right. What we always say to, to anyone is going from, from, you know, salary GPs particularly, a lot of salary GPs didn't realise, they're a lot better now, they didn't realise they actually have to submit an annual declaration. Um, so a lot of people may have a salary GP record from five, six years ago, which was just missing because they didn't realise they had to do it. It's a bit like a logjam. If you don't take that logjam and unblock it, then nothing afterwards will get processed. So as soon as you get that logjam out of the way, you can get everything processed. Um, but it is it is hard work and it shouldn't be as hard as it is. One whole module of our course is dedicated to the pension. Great for people on our course, but if you're not on our course, we also made a guide, which is medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash NHS pension guide. And it just takes you through the step by steps that you've got to go through. You know, if, if you get to this step and PCSE have, the record isn't correct, what's the complaints email? How do you escalate it from there? So just to echo what Andy said, if you sort the paperwork out now, it's going to be a lot better than trying to sort it out post McLeod or at retirement when you're relying on bits of paper from 30 years ago to say, no, I did pay those pension contributions and they haven't just gone into the ether. So we've got a guide. It just walks you through it step by step. We also got a YouTube video on it, which shows you how to use PCSE's pensions portal. And I don't want to praise PCSE because I think that they are not great, but the pensions portal it works at least. So if you haven't sort of had a look at your PCSE pensions portal, you just register for free online, have a look. And uh, me and Andy made a YouTube video about how to kind of look at it and work out, is my record correct or not? But it is a nightmare. The McLeod judgment, this is about age discrimination. Is that right? What could the implications of that be? Quickly. <laughs> so I know there's a whole podcast <laughs> just in that. <laughs> so back in April 2015, if you were at that point in time, under the age of 50, at that point in time, your contributions to the what were known as legacy schemes, so it was either the 1995 scheme or the 2008 scheme, ceased, and you would transfer or you, all your record going forward was going into the 2015 scheme. But what they did at that time, they, they try and protected older people from that change. Because they protected older people, and this is across the whole of public sector, it wasn't the NHS, you, you know, it was, it was everything. And it was actually firefighters and judges, which um, took the government to court. But it was age discrimination, basically, because younger people were not being offered the same terms as older people. So what they have had to do is um, 
from the 1st of April 2022, everyone contributing now is in the 2015 scheme. But for that seven-year period, which was a transitional period, they are going to have to now look back and actually offer people the best option as to whether they should have just stayed in the legacy scheme or should have transferred to the 2015 scheme. And for some people, 2015 scheme will still give them a better pension in the long term. But there's an awful lot of people out there to deal with. You know, the, well, however, you know, million and a half people work in the NHS are all affected by this potentially. A lot of people are retired. So there's going to be a whole exercise coming out. We're still, you know, the legislation doesn't exist at the moment. They're still consulting on the legislation because it changes tax, it changes the pension calculation, it changes so many different things. So there's nothing people should be worrying about at the moment. No one's going to be worse off from this. Everyone will either be better off or where they are at the moment. But at some point, people will have to make a decision. If you can get your pension record up to date now, it will mean that when all the stuff does start to flow through, the pensions agency will have to give you a comparison of where you are now versus what you could have been on. So it just makes planning for the long term better. Okay, great. Yeah, after that little detour into pensions, I'll just come back to partnerships now. One of the things I, I did want to ask you about um, is we've written stories on GP Online sort of recently over the past couple of years about sort of rise in partnership disputes and, and disputes within PCNs as well. You know, some of this is potentially about money, but it's not just about money. It's partly because everybody's working in a much more high pressured environment. You know, there's not enough staff to do the job. Everybody's more stressed, but money does have a role to play in it. You know, is there anything you think that partnerships can do to protect themselves from disputes? Too many GPs operate without a proper sort of legal framework and they shouldn't do. It's getting better, but it's really important to have a partnership agreement because, of, you know, the, the way the archaic law works in this country, if you don't have a partnership agreement, then actually you are reliant then on the 1890 Partnership Act. So a partnership act from the 19th century still applies to your practice. And it can cause all kinds of problems, particularly if you have disputes and breakups of practices, you could end up losing your contract. Fundamentally, every GP practice should have a partnership agreement and it's always easier to actually have those agreements in place because you agree things when you're getting on so you know the rules of what you're engaging in so that when there is a problem down the line um, you've agreed it in the good times so, so no one can redispute really dispute it but the second thing is also just some general financial planning that needs to be done around things that you know, simple protections that can be put in place and things like locum insurance policies, making sure that your practice has the right level of cover should someone go off at short notice for something you can't plan about. And those kind of protections are quite cheap, but it's one of those costs, you know, it goes back to my thing, don't cut the wrong costs because whilst you may not, you, know, you, you may be thinking, why are we paying out for an insurance policy when actually we can just take the risk of not needing it? When you do need it, it comes into its own. So doing that proper financial planning is quite important then the other thing which gps are rubbish at doing unfortunately is is seeking help early when things start to go wrong really great you know in terms of engaging with their patients and sorting their patients problems out and making sure they get early intervention there but actually tend to find that in in gp practice world when things start to go wrong in the practice they don't get help early on. There are lots of people out there who can now help in just in terms of just working through the issues and and diluting those issues. Because the problem is if they don't dilute them, they'll escalate. And once they've escalated, it becomes very expensive. It becomes very problematic. 
it becomes a real issue for the sustainability of the practice. We have a whole uh, section on our course about the legals and it's painful paying legal fees. They are expensive, but it's always worth doing. Uh, So I think the partnership agreement is great. Uh, Our PCN just incorporated and we took some legal advice about that. It costs thousands of pounds, but it's just to protect everybody in future. And it's, you just can't do these things retrospectively. It's tedious and it's expensive, but you've got to get that thing absolutely nailed in. The partnership deed should be one of the things that new partners, you know, they should be looking at that when they come in straight away, making sure that it's the kind of things that they're happy with as well. Do they need to take legal advice on that point as well? I would say so. Certainly read it. I think on the course, we go through some good and bad examples of partnership agreements in a sort of breakout. And it's actually really hard to spot if you're not a lawyer, like tiny little words make a massive difference. And that's a really interesting exercise, which we do in breakout groups. And some of the points, they're so niche. And it's just like, you know, when I joined our practice, uh, I definitely reviewed the partnership agreement. It's just good. You got to get one in place and it's got to be decent from a decent lawyer. So yeah. We talked about premises earlier, and I was just thinking, you know, the premises is becoming a real problem in general practice at the minute because there's not enough space, there's not enough building, and there's all these new people coming in, many, many more by the sounds of things from the NHS workforce plan and nowhere to put them. What can partnerships do? What should partnerships be thinking about now in terms of premises and buildings and, and future-proofing their business, I guess, from that point of view? Yeah, it's, again, it's a conversation I'm having quite frequently at the moment because people have run out of space, particularly with all the new PCN staff to house. No one seems to have thought through PCNs. Actually, employers is extra staff. They actually have to go and work somewhere and there has to be no premises plan that's gone around them, which is typical in NHS, really, unfortunately. You know, I may sound like a bit like a stuck record here again, but you have to go back to the basics of business. Um, and that's some of those conversations I'm having at the moment are quite difficult with, with GPs. GPs are quite happy to invest in their premises and happy to grow their premises space if it can be made a lot easier for them. You've got to be careful about, you know, often you run away and think, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But actually, the business model is about actually, if you're investing in your premises, it's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you money in terms of loan repayments or some initial capital. And you have to have return on that. So the rent has to be right. You have to get extra rent for that space. Or you have to bring in other services which are going to develop an income stream for the practice. If you don't do any of those, then any premises development you're doing at the moment are effectively funding the NHS for free. Um, and you are acting like a charity for the NHS. The problem at the moment is no one seems to have any money in commissioning world to actually support this. All you can do at the moment is constantly talk to your ICB about your space issues and actually about how to overcome those. Like my practice has actual personal experience with because a large number of new houses have been built and our building is really creaking at the seams. So just to echo that, there are some funding sources. Uh, Section 106 money is worth having a look. It's very difficult to get hold of, but that's just if they build new houses. In theory, there is a Section 106 money. Minor improvement grants are worth looking at, but they are quite limited in what you can achieve with those. But also, you know, we've been forced to think innovatively at our practice. So If you look at the room occupancy, um, you know, I might do a three hour clinic in my room and then two hours of paperwork and then another three hour clinic. Why could I not do my paperwork somewhere else? You know, am I utilizing that clinical space effectively? So could you look at hot desking? Another thing that we've done as well is, you know, allow certain members of staff to work from home. um, And that's 
tricky to manage, but it does free up space. We've reconfigured our existing footprint. But again, that doesn't get us any more rent. Um, so we've just, you know, had to sort of t- take, take the hill on that. But th- there are things that you can do. Is there anything else that you think that is important for people to think about with regards to partnerships and practice finance? I wouldn't be put off by partnership at the moment. Partnerships have been very good and they've been the bedrock of the NHS general practice for, for many years and for good reason because they are they allow you as individuals to take control of your your service delivery. They allow you to work in a community setting. You know, it's great fun working in small businesses because people do generally step up because you're working with a very small team. You know, it's not isolating. You're not working solely on your own. So partnerships do offer a quite a positive way of working. So don't be put off at the moment by, you know, there's so much bad news around and, and negative stuff. If any commercial business got the patient satisfaction surveys that general practice got, they'd be delighted. Very few other businesses out there will get such a strong support from their actual customer base as general practice does. Just still be positive around partnership is what I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. I'd echo that. I think, you know, the right partnership still makes a lot of sense and don't be put off. Uh, but but do go into it with your eyes open. You know, you need to check a few basic things. Just go into it with your eyes open, definitely. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. No problem. Hope that was helpful. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much to Tommy and Andy for speaking with me. I'm back next week when I'm speaking to Toby Watt, who's the lead economist at Think Tank, the Health Foundation's Real Centre, about a major new report looking at projected patterns of illness in England by 2040 and what it all means for general practice. So do join me then. In the meantime, don't forget you can keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice and access a range of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 